Would you bow your hearts and pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this amazing opportunity to be with your people and to rehearse the gospel through our songs and through the preaching of your word. We thank you for the cross because all our sins have been paid for on the cross. We thank you, Christ, that because of your sacrifice, Lord, nothing will sever us from the love of Christ, love the Father. We thank you, Lord, that we can stand secure in that, we can celebrate that, we can believe that, and we can preach that. We thank you for your word, which teaches that so clearly, and yet so many people today do not believe that. I do pray that as we study this passage of Scripture, as we look at this illustration that Paul gives to us, Lord, that we would be reminded that there is nothing else that could save but the gospel of grace. Everything else leads to damnation. And I pray that your word would land on each heart today because you know where each person is. You know what each person is going through, Lord, and only you can speak to their hearts. And so I ask that you would do that. Spirit, I ask that you would work in our hearts through the preaching of your word and that you would address each one of us, whatever the need is. Be glorified through it all, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Galatians chapter 4. As I said, the title of today's sermon is The Sons of the Wrong Son. We have been working our way through this book, and today we come to what many believe is the most difficult section of this book. Now, the difficulty here is not because Paul is not clear or it's hard to grasp what he is saying. The difficulty here is how Paul goes about making his point. Now, to clarify further, what people have done to this text and what people use this text to do to other portions of Scripture is what brought much confusion. What am I talking about? Now, look at chapter 4, verse 24. Paul writes this. This is allegorically speaking. Now, this little phrase here has been used by many to justify allegorical interpretation of the Bible. You might say, well, what is allegorical interpretation? And when we're talking about allegorical interpretation, people say that when you're talking about, when you're reading the text of Scripture, and you're looking at the literal, grammatical, and historical sense of the text, those are just vehicles by which we get underneath the text to figure out the hidden meaning of the text. And that hidden meaning is more profound, it is more spiritual, and it is much deeper than what you actually have on the pages of Scripture. In the third century, Origen of Alexandria, who is the father of allegorical interpretation, he claimed that every passage of the Bible has a three, at least three different senses. One, he says, there is a literal sense, and that literal sense is earthly and carnal. There is a soulish sense, he said, which relates to the matters of religious life. And then there is a spiritual sense, and that relates to your heavenly life. In the 4th century, Augustine, who further mainstreamed this method, he claimed that there is a lot more to the text that you can actually see on your pages of Scripture. How many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? Probably all of you, right? And for your entire life, you probably thought that that story is about loving your neighbor. Well, guess what? According to Augustine, you could not have been more wrong. And I'll let him tell you about it. Listen to his interpretation. He said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Thieves are the devil and his angels, who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin, and left him half dead. Because in so far as men can understand and know God, he lives, but in so far as he is uh, as, as wasted and oppressed by sin, he's dead, he's therefore called half dead. The priest and the Levite, who saw him and passed by, signify priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian. And therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. The binding of wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine 
is the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh which he puts on himself. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where the travelers return from their heavenly country and are refreshed after their pilgrimage. When I return is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two denarii are either two precepts of love or the promise of the life which is to come. The innkeeper is the apostle. And he goes on. Now, you probably never saw that in the text. And you know why you didn't see that? It's not because you're a simpleton or a rube. It's because it's not there. That's why you didn't see it. But see, allegorical interpretation allows you to bring all of these things in and say, wait, by the way, you've heard the story, but this is what it actually means. You see, allegorical interpretation of the Bible is nothing more than just foolish imaginations of man. Here are some problems with allegorical interpretation. First of all, speculation, they disregard the common usage of words. So when you have a Samaritan, you can say, well, it means Samaritan. It means something else. In cannot mean in. Denari cannot mean denari. So you just have a people who speculate and say, this means that. When you use this method of interpretation, the authority is not in the word, but the authority is in the mind of the interpreter. That's why it's so subjective. It's so subjective because there is no way to test the conclusions. I just read you what he said parable of the Good Samaritan means. Where are you going to go to figure out that that's not what it means? How are you going to disprove that? There is no way. You can't cross-reference that. No. Why? Because the interpretation is in the mind of the interpreter. That's why when we teach the Bible in this church, that's why when we study the Bible, we stick to literal, grammatical, and historical interpretation of the Bible. When we say it is literal, what we mean is that the words have ordinary meaning. Now, of course, we're talking about there are metaphors in the Bible. There are similes. When Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't literally mean that he's the door. That's not what he's saying. And we know how to interpret metaphors and similes. We're talking about grammatical because we're saying that grammar conveys meaning. That's why every time, you know, okay, pick up this word, look at this word. This is what it means. This is the tense that it's in. This is how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. Why? Because grammar conveys meaning. And it is historical. Historical in the sense that we're looking to the original text and we're trying to figure out what did the original author intend in his context, in his setting, and in his circumstances. Remember, we say this again and again, the Bible was not written to you. It was written to people who lived at least 2,000 years ago. So our job is to figure out what did the text mean for them, and only then we can make conclusions that are relevant to us. But the reason why our text might seem complicated here, and we'll read it in just a second, because people take the concept of allegorical interpretation, and they shove it into this text, and they say, well, this is what Paul was doing. No, this idea was not developed for 200 years until Paul wrote this 200 years before these ideas were even developed. Nothing can be further from the truth. What Paul is doing in our text is not what some who use allegorical interpretation claim he does. Now let's briefly examine how we got to this text. Here in chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 21, reading in just a moment. This passage serves as a conclusion to this second major section in this book, the doctrinal defense of the gospel of grace. Paul has provided every argument in defense of the gospel, and he has refuted every challenge that has been posed to him. Now, he could have rested his case and just said, amen, goodbye, but he gives this final illustration. Now, the word allegory is used in verse 24, but Paul does not spiritualize or give you a deeper meaning of the text in the book of Genesis. When the Paul uses the word allegory in verse 24, it means to employ an analogy. It means to use likeness in communication. What Paul is simply saying is this. I've been telling you about the gospel of grace and of salvation by works. And I've been comparing these two in different ways, using different arguments, using different illustrations. Let me tell you an Old Testament illustration that perfectly pictures what I've been explaining to you. Let me take you back to the story which you all know, and I will illustrate by that story that salvation by grace and salvation by works, they are diametrically opposed to one another. 
Paul is not giving you a deeper meaning of Scripture. Paul does not say, hey guys, by the way, I know you know the book of Genesis, but do you know what it really means? Let me tell you what it really means. No, Paul is emphatic that he is referring to the actual text. Now look at the language here. Verse 22, he says, for it is written. Verse 27, for it is written. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Notice he appeals to the written word again and again. Paul is using history as an illustration of what he's been talking about. Now verse 25 gives us an idea of how Paul is using the stories in Genesis. Look at verse 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. What is this word, correspond? You see, to correspond is to have close similarity to or to be analogous of. Notice what he does not say. Mount Sinai in Arabia is that. No, he's saying it illustrates that. It pictures this. I mean, this is kind of like what we do in the sermons, right? You have sermons, you have explaining the text, and then he says, let me give you an illustration of what this is like. Well, this is one big illustration here at the end of the chapter. This is Paul's illustration. It is Old Testament story that is used as an illustration. Here's Paul's main point. This is what Paul is trying to communicate in this text. He says, since faith sets you free from the curse of the law, stand firm in that freedom and do not return to slavery. That is the point of this text. Since faith in Christ set you free from the curse of the law, stand firm in that freedom and do not return to slavery. Now, as we work through this text, I want to give you three words to hang your thoughts on. The first word is the confusion. Because in verse 21, Paul is confused about Galatians. He's confused about their desire to go back under the law. Then in verses 22 through, through verse 30, Paul provides six contrasts that demonstrate that the gospel of grace is diametrically opposed to the salvation by works or salvation by keeping the law. And then finally in verse 31 and in chapter 5 verse 1, Paul gives us his conclusion. Stand firm in the gospel. So the confusion, the contrast, and the conclusion. Read with me beginning in verse 19, chapter 4 verse 19. He says, my children, with whom I am, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's begin with the confusion. Now, I read verses 19 through 21 because there, as you heard last Sunday, we have the heart of Paul. Pastor Paul who says, listen, 
I am like a mother who is willing to go through birth pains again. Like, didn't I give you birth? Do I have to go through this again? Yeah, I'm willing to do that because that's what I want you to do. I want you to stand firm in the gospel. In verse 20, he says, I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed. I mean, it's hard for me to comprehend what you're doing. Why in the world, when you have been set free, would you want to go back to slavery? That's why in verse 21, he asks the question. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? I mean, help me understand this. Am I not getting something? What am I missing? It's either I don't understand what the law is or you don't understand. Because if you understood what the law says, you would never want to go back under the law. See, most of these believers were Gentiles who converted and who heard the gospel. Paul preached the gospel to them. They believed the gospel. They were in the church. And now they were hearing these Judaizers who would come in and start preaching the law to them. They start preaching the Old Testament. I mean, these guys, they didn't grow up reading the Old Testament. They didn't know much. And it's either Paul says, you know, they didn't tell you the whole story. You don't really understand what the law does. You don't really understand what the law says. Because if you understood what the law says, you would not want to be under the law. No, Paul is not confused about the law. Because Paul, he said, I've been, you know, I used two chapters explaining what the law is and what the law does. So I am not confused about it, but you are confused about it. Now look at this phrase. He says, you who want to be under law. That's what Paul is confused about. How in the world would anyone want to be under the law? After he has explained what the law does, and what does the law do? It simply condemns. Law brings judgment. Law condemns you to hell. That's what law does. And he says, if you understand that, why would you want to be under the law? Now again, these are relatively new believers, and perhaps they didn't understand what they were embracing. And so again, that doesn't give them an excuse for that. But Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand what the law does. To be under the law is to be under its power. If you are under the law, the law is your master. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, what is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us nor the spirit which actuates us. He says, anyone who wants to be under the law does not understand the law. That's why Paul says, hey, do you not listen to the law? Because if you would listen, and if you would understand what it is that you're subjecting yourself to, you would never want to do that. Now, Paul uses the law here in the broad sense because he's going to refer to the book of Genesis and the law in the sense of first five books written by Moses because Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, this brings us to the second point, the contrast. Now, as I said, Paul will use the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael to illustrate that salvation by faith and salvation by works, they are diametrically opposed to one another. See, these are two different streams that come from two different sources and that lead to two different destinations. This is the story of Abraham. Now notice the first contrast. The first contrast is the contrast of two sons. Look at verse 22. He says, for it is written... Let me use a biblical illustration to demonstrate what I'm talking about. Again, notice it is written that Abraham had two sons. Again, Paul appeals to the word of God, and he's going to use this historical account from the life of Abraham to make his point. Now, we've said this many times already as we worked our way through the book of Galatians, that both Jews, Judaizers, and even Christians, they all prized the fact that Abraham was their father, right? You remember when Jesus was preaching and the Jewish leaders like, hey, we're sons of Abraham. Judaizers, they're like, hey, we are, Abraham is our father. And I can almost picture Paul saying, you know, you claim to be sons of Abraham. And guess what? You're right. You're right. You are sons of Abraham. There's one little problem, though, that Abraham had two sons, and you guys are sons of the wrong son. That's your problem. 
And so he uses this illustration from, the, from history, history that they prized, the fact that they were related to Abraham and that they were heirs of Abraham. Like, yeah, we are sons of Abraham. And Paul's like, you're right. You are sons of Abraham. But guess what? You are sons of the wrong son. Notice he says Abraham had two sons. But to be more specific, Abraham had more than two sons because he had at least six sons. But the two sons that he refers to here is Isaac and Ishmael. These are the two sons that Paul is talking about here. Now, you could be a physical descendant of Abraham and still be in the wrong line. And that's what Paul is saying. That yes, you could be son of Abraham, but guess what? You are still outside of the promises of God. Now, these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, they could not have been more different. They had the same father, but they had two different mothers. And this leads us to the second contrast, the contrast of two women. Notice verse 22 again. He says he had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. See, in ancient times, the status of the mother affected the status of her children. Again, you have two women here. Paul doesn't name them, but we're talking about Sarah and we're talking about Hagar. Now, Sarah is Abraham's wife and Hagar is Sarah's maid. You see, their status and their position was so different. One was a free woman, and the other one was a slave. And that's why Paul says, one born by the bondwoman, and one born from the free woman. Now this word free here is used five times in this text. And the word freedom will be used three times in the next chapter, because that is the point that Paul is going to be hammering again and again and again. Listen, you can be in slavery, or you can be free. If you come from this life, you are a slave. If you come from this line, you are free. And so he's saying there were two women. One was a slave, and the other one was free. And notice what Paul is going to say is that these two concepts, you cannot fuse them. You see, you are either going to be free, or you're going to be slave. You're not anywhere in between. If you come from this line, you're free. If you come from this line, you are a slave. The two women, they gave birth to two sons. One is Ishmael, the other one is Isaac. And this brings us to the third contrast, the contrast of two powers. Two powers, what I'm referring to, he says, one was born according to the flesh, and the other one was born according to the promise or the spirit. Now notice how Paul distinguishes their births. I mean, there are many things you could have said about their births, but notice what Paul zeroes in on, verse 23. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. What does that mean? Because in a sense, everyone is born according to the flesh. But what exactly is Paul talking about when he says he was born according to the flesh? Now, we've went over Abraham's story again and again and again, but just a refresher here. You remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old. And God says to Abraham, I will bless you and you will have a son. That's a promise that God makes to Abraham. Abraham leaves his land, follows God, and for the next 10 years, he doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a son. He's 85. The promise has not yet been fulfilled. And so Sarah comes along and she tries to help God. And you remember the story. She tries to help God and she says, well, let me give you my maid, Hagar. You go into her and we'll have a promised child. Let's do that. Let's help God. Now, is that not when we get in trouble? When you're not waiting, but you're trying to act according to your own will and according to your own power. Listen to this observation. It says, the flesh loves excitement. It is always ready to jump up and run somewhere. The Holy Spirit does not. Someone had said that Satan rushes man, but God leads them. Never act in panic, nor allow men to dictate to you. Calm yourself and be still. Force yourself into the quiet of your closet until the pulse beats normally and the scare has ceased to disrupt. When you are most eager to act is the time when you will make the most pitiable mistakes. Do not say in your heart what you will do or what you will not do, but wait upon God until he makes known his way. So long as the way is hidden, it is clear that there is no need for action. And that is a good advice. Sarah was not waiting. She was not about to wait. So she's trying to help 
Abraham. She's trying to help God to fulfill his promise. And she gives Hagar to Abraham. He goes in, and they have a son. That's why Paul says he was born according to the flesh. You see, the birth of Ishmael did not require a promise. It did not require a miracle. It did not require dependence on God or trust in him. It was a fleshly act. It was a sinful act. Abraham was supposed to wait until God gave him a son through Sarah. But no, it was according to the flesh. So to do things according to the flesh is to do them according to our will and our desires. That's what Abraham did. He goes in and Ishmael is born. On the other hand, there is another son. And he says here that Isaac was born through the promise. Abraham and Sarah had to wait another 14 years until Isaac was born. By that time, Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. And so obviously it took a miracle for them to have a child. But guess what? There was a promise of God that I am going to fulfill this promise. You have to wait on me and you have to trust me. And guess what? The time came when God fulfilled that promise. It was an impossible birth. It was a miracle child because there was no other explanation. And notice Paul is using this as an illustration. He says, let me illustrate this to you. There is a man-made religion and there is a God's way of salvation. Men's made religion is like Abraham going into Sarah. It is trying to achieve the promises of God, the promise of salvation in your own way and according to your own power. God-made religion is trusting in His promise and waiting on Him. Those two sons, they illustrate what salvation by faith and salvation by works look like. On the one hand, you're doing what you want according to your will and according to your time. On the other hand, you're waiting for God to bring about deliverance. And this brings us to the fourth contrast, the contrast of two covenants. Look at verse 24. He says, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now again, notice here that Paul draws a parallel between two women and two covenants. Now notice he is not saying that these two women are two covenants, but he says they correspond. He says these two women, they perfectly picture the two covenants. The two women are Sarah and Hagar. And the two covenants that Paul has in mind here is Abrahamic covenant and it's a Mosaic covenant. This is what Paul been working through and explaining for the last two chapters. Now notice he says here that Hagar was a bondwoman. And because she was a slave, she perfectly pictures those who are under the law. If you were born to Sarah, you were born as a slave. And he says anyone and everyone who is under the law perfectly pictures those who are descendants of Hagar. Listen, there is no freedom in the law of Moses. The law enslaves. Why? Because you must perfectly obey God. If you're going to stand before God and you're going to gain your acceptance before God by keeping the law of Moses, you better keep it perfectly. There is never freedom from it. Because if you deviate once, if you violate one commandment, you have become guilty of all. That's why he says there is no freedom in the law. You see, in this covenant, which is Mosaic covenant, your acceptance before God is contingent upon your performance. If you violate the law, you break the law, and therefore you suffer the consequences. That's why he says, cursed everyone who is under the law. Because no one keeps the law perfectly. He says, just like Hagar, if you gave birth, you give birth to slaves. And he says, anyone and everyone who is under the Mosaic covenant is a slave. Mosaic law. Paul has already explained, is a tutor that leads you to Christ. Mosaic law is a babysitter. You know, when you were a child, maybe your parents took you to a babysitter or they brought a babysitter home. And when you were with your babysitter, or maybe you do that as parents, right? And you give strict rules to a babysitter. You say, okay, this is what they can do. This is what time to go to sleep. This is what they eat. And you know, there are strict rules which babysitter enforces. But guess what? When mom and dad comes home, all those rules are out the door, right? Because mom and dad are home. Now you don't need all those strict rules. And that's what he's saying here. Mosaic law is like that babysitter which God gave. And there were these strict rules. And those strict rules were for you until the father comes. 
They were there for you until Christ comes. Until Christ comes and he sets you free from those rules. He sets you free from those parameters. That's why Paul says that Hagar bears children who are to be slaves. On the other hand, Sarah, this is a picture of Abrahamic covenant. You see, Sarah was a free woman. She was a free woman, and therefore when she gave birth to Isaac, he was a free man. And so he's saying here, if you are under Abrahamic covenant, if you receive the promises which were given in Abrahamic covenant, you correspond to that second son. You are a son like Sarah's son. You are just like Isaac. You see, in this covenant, your acceptance before God is not contingent upon your performance. In this covenant, your acceptance is contingent upon the performance of Christ. Is it not? You see, because you are son of the promise, because you are a child of God, because you trust in Christ, all of your sins are wiped away. Righteousness is imputed to you because Jesus Christ stood in your place. Because Jesus Christ paid for all of your sins. They all have been wiped clean. Your past, your present, and your future sins have been wiped clean. You were taken off the slave market. You were brought in and God says, this is now my son. This is now my daughter. And your acceptance before God is contingent not upon your performance. Not that, oh, did you have a good week today? Well, guess what? God is very happy with you. Well, you had a bad day yesterday? I'm sorry, you know, he's really... No. In this covenant, you are accepted as a son. Babysitter is gone. Rules are gone. And you're made a child who can freely run into the throne room of God. And you are now a child of God. Two sons. Two mothers. Distinct and different. And notice they cannot coexist together. And notice there is also a fifth contrast. The contrast of two cities. Paul is just piling on here, right? Verse 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Although Mount Sinai is in the Arabian Peninsula, it was associated with the Jews because that was the place where God gave the two tablets to Moses, right? It was associated with law given, with the Mosaic law. And notice what Paul says here, that Mount Sinai, it corresponds, it pictures, it represents, represents what? First century Jerusalem. We said when he says here current day or present day, he's not referring to today. He's referring to the day in which he was writing. And you remember when Paul was writing this, Jerusalem is still intact. Temple is still intact. People are still going to the temple and they're still sacrificing. They're still bringing their sacrifices there. There is a priest there who would take that and bring it on your behalf. The temple still stands. And Paul says, listen, this present Jerusalem, they're slaves. They're slaves of Rome. And they're slaves of the law. We know from New Testament that most of the Jews, or many of the Jews, they have rejected Christianity. And they continued in their legalism. Because you see, after Christ rose from the dead, that system was null and void. There was no point in sacrifices because everything that they were doing was pointing to Jesus Christ. And when he fulfilled it, there was no point. It was just shadows. It was just pictures that did not do anything for those who participated in those practices. Nothing. But guess what? Until 70 AD, people continued to sacrifice in that temple. When in 70 AD, Roman general Titus came in and he destroyed that place, that's when the entire system collapsed. But until then, there were still people who were doing the things that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And Paul says... You look at those people at present Jerusalem. You look at all those people who are traveling to Jerusalem to bring their sacrifice. They are under a tutor. They're slaves of the law. They are not free because they can't just say, oh, I'm not just not going to do this today. I changed my mind. No, they're slaves. Why? Because they thought their acceptance with God was contingent upon their performance. They thought their acceptance with God was contingent upon them obeying the law. Paul says, all who are under the law are slaves. You see, if you cling to the law as a means of salvation, he says, you must accept all its consequences. And what are the consequences? You must perfectly obey the law. If you think that somehow, some way, you can be accepted by doing something for God, he says, you must be perfect in your conduct. You must never sin in the past or in the present. That's why he says all those people, they're like Hagar. They're born from a slave, 
They are slave, and they continue in their slavery. And notice, Paul uses these individuals to demonstrate deeper reality, uh, deeper reality. You see, at the end of the day, your physical lineage is irrelevant. It doesn't matter who you were born from. It doesn't matter what line you come from. That's what has been the emphasis of this book all along. Because all of us, we all come from one line. There is one race. There's Adam's race. And all who are born from Adam are born in sin. And they're all born in sin. And the law was given to demonstrate to all of us that we are sinners. All the law does is show you you are a sinner. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot approach God by your own performance. You need someone else to do it. And he says, people who still say, I think I'm going to keep the law. He says, they're like, it's foolish. It's foolish because the law was never given to you to make you righteous before God. Notice, it is Jews and Gentiles who choose to submit to Christ rather than subjecting themselves to the law, who receive the privilege of being sons of God. And it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what line you came from. If you have faith in Christ, you are a child of Isaac. You are part of Abrahamic covenant, and you are accepted. But you might not be a Jew, and you might not be into law-keeping, but you are into other things by which you think you could be accepted. Then you're just like Ishmael. You were born of a slave, just like Adam, Right? You were born from Adam. You were born into slavery. Your father is the devil. And you just continue in that slavery. That's what Paul is saying. Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, which is revealed by the law. And in the spiritual sense, all of us, every single one of us, at one time, was a child of Hagar and Ishmael. But how are you transferred from one lineage to the other? It is by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice he says, but there is another city. There is earthly Jerusalem. There is earthly Jerusalem where people perform these actions thinking that by them they will be accepted. But there is also heavenly Jerusalem, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Notice he says, if you are in Christ, you are now a citizen of a different city. You are now a citizen of a different country. You are a citizen of heavenly Jerusalem. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the heavenly Jerusalem is the city of the living God. He says, all those who are part of Abrahamic covenant, all those who place their faith in Christ, are now citizens of that heavenly city. They're under a different system. They're under a different ruler. Book of Hebrews has this interesting insight. He says that even now when you come together to worship, you are joining those who are worshiping in that city. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, when you come together to worship, you're not just gathering together with 10, 15, or 20 people. No, he says, you're gathering together, and when you come together to worship, you are approaching the throne room of God. You are approaching the throne, the heavenly city where everyone is worshiping. And who's there? He says, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of angel, blood of Abel. Listen, when you come to worship, it's not that you just have a small group that gathers together. No, he says there is a large group. There's a large assembly of everyone who's in heaven. The saints who have gone before you, they're worshiping before the throne of God, and you're joining your voice to theirs as you're singing praises. That is the heavenly Jerusalem. And guess what? One day that heavenly Jerusalem is coming down. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. If you have experienced grace, if you are in Christ, even now you are a member of that city. You are a citizen of that heavenly Jerusalem. 
Now, this heavenly Jerusalem is characterized by freedom, not by bondage, by freedom. Now, in the chapter 5, Paul will develop this concept of freedom, and he'll talk a lot about it, but I just want to touch briefly on this here. What does Paul mean when he says that if you are in Christ, you are now free? Does that mean you live your life however you want, live as if there is no law of God, go do whatever you want because God doesn't care about sin anymore? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. He will say in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. He's talking about sin. Don't do that. But through love, serve one another. You see, when Paul talks about freedom, specifically in this book, he's saying that you are set free from obedience to the system, of, to, to the mosaic system. You are free from that system. You are freed from the regulations which were imposed on the people in the old covenant. You are free from those rules, regulations, those ceremonies, because all of those were abolished in Christ. You no longer have to go down to a specific place with a specific sacrifice to a specific person so that he would represent you before God. You no longer have to do that. You have freedom to go directly into the throne room of God because of Jesus Christ. It is a freedom to know that you are completely accepted by God because of the work of Christ. It is a freedom to have clean conscience because every sin has been atoned for. It is freedom of a son to approach the father and to call him Abba. It is a freedom that is not bound by external regulations and shadows. Furthermore, in chapter 5, Paul will connect this freedom to your walk in the Spirit. This freedom is not walking according to rules and regulations that were written down in the Old Testament. He says this freedom manifests itself in you walking and being led by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God brings freedom. New covenant is the covenant where the Spirit of God comes and He indwells you and He leads you and He guides you. Paul says 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's liberty. There's freedom. You see, the Spirit of God who comes from the Father and the Son he brings freedom to those who were slaves, to those who were under the tutor of the law. In this illustration, if Hagar illustrates the present Jerusalem, then Sarah represents the heavenly one. In verse 27, Paul quotes a passage which we read earlier. And he quotes this passage, and this passage was originally given to people who were slaves in Babylon. Remember when the nation was taken captive and they were carried away to Babylon. I mean, they were fragile. They were small. They had no hope. And Paul takes that passage and now he applies it to those who are in Abrahamic covenant. He applies it to Sarah because Sarah is used in context even by Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 51. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like a garden of the Lord." Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of melody. Now that sounds like nothing short but freedom, right? <laughs> Notice he's talking to slaves. He's talking to slaves who are, it's a small group. They're small, they're fragile, they're without hope. The situation is dire. And to those slaves, God says, listen, the day is coming when restoration will come. You have a promise of restoration. See, she looks like a barren woman. A barren woman who does not have children, who has no hope. But he says, this barren woman will have many children. That's what Paul says, for rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now you might think, even at the time when Paul was writing this, that there is this established system of worship. I mean, Jerusalem worship or Temple worship. I mean, this was an elaborate system. They had beautiful buildings. 
They had all the smells. They had all the bells. And if you looked at it, man, this was wonderful. This was beautiful. If you want to feel worship, if you want to experience something, you would go to Jerusalem. And then God says, listen, you know what? That system that looks so brilliant, that has beautiful buildings, that have people dressed up, and they go through all these ceremonies. Guess what? It's worthless. It doesn't do anything. Go over there in that little shack over there and worship with those five people. I mean, that would be ridiculous. People are like, do what? But that's exactly what happened. When the church was born, they didn't have an elaborate building. They didn't have an elaborate ceremony. They didn't have elaborate church service. No, they get together, apostles teaching, breaking of the bread, and fellowship and prayer. That was their church service. And God says, listen, that whole system that looks so brilliant, nothing. doesn't mean anything. Abandon that. Leave that. And go over here with these people and worship with them. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. And in that time, if you were to compare two systems, one looked fragile and the other one looked brilliant. But guess what? God says that little fragile thing is going to grow into the kingdom that's going to overtake the world. And this thing is going to be completely wiped out. And guess what? In 70 AD, it was wiped out. And you cannot find it anymore. One little wall where you can go and pray. That's what they do. That system is gone. System of works is gone. But this is like that tree that grows and takes over the whole world. That's what Paul is saying here. There is hope. There is hope in the gospel of grace. She will have many children. And why will she have many children? Because if you are in the line of Abraham and Sarah, you're in the line of Isaac. And if you are part of Abrahamic covenant, which means that if you believe in Christ, because Christ came in that law, through Christ, you are part of that covenant. And that's why this is fulfillment for you and me. That's why verse 28 says, You are brethren like Isaac, our children of promise. He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people who heard the gospel. He's talking to people who were converted. He says, listen, you are in that line. That's why her descendants are more numerous. That's why you and I are part of verse 28. Isaac was a child of promise. And he says, and you are his descendant if you believe the promises of God. Your connection is not through a bloodline. Your connection is through faith. You see, you don't become child of Abraham or a child of God because you faithfully adhere to the laws which were given in the Old Covenant. Paul made that clear. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. You see, faith in the promise of God results in sonship. You are a child of Isaac because just like Isaac, you have experienced supernatural birth. Since Paul uses that as an illustration, he says his birth was supernatural. It was a birth of a promise. And he says you have experienced supernatural birth. You received the promise of salvation. Verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. And guess what? You're heirs according to promise. Only If you are in the line of Isaac, you are heirs according to promise. This brings us to the final contrast, the contrast of two destinies. Look at verse 29. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Let me highlight again that Paul is not discovering new truths in Genesis, some hidden meaning which no one understood. But he quotes historical account and again uses that as an analogy of what happens in the spiritual life. Again, pay close attention to how he describes Isaac And Ishmael, notice he says, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. He already explained that in verse 23. And in contrast, he says, Isaac was born according to the Spirit. Now he leads us to what he's going to talk about in chapter 5. And it's all going to be about the work of the Spirit. And he says, in the Old Covenant, Isaac was born according to the Spirit. His birth was supernatural. And notice he says, Ishmael represents all who are according to the flesh and who walk according to the flesh. And Isaac pictures all who are born of the Spirit and those who walk in the Spirit. Now in verse 29, Paul is referring to Genesis 21. 
Genesis 21.9 says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. By the time you get to Genesis 21, Ishmael is a teenager. Because if he was born when Abraham was 86, and Isaac was born when he was 100, right? So you got, what, 14 years, 13 years old. So he's a teenager now. Now, by the time you get to chapter 21, verse 9, it says that Isaac was weaned, which means he was about two or three. So by this time, Ishmael is probably 14, 15, and Isaac about two or three. And so when he was two or three, when he was weaned, we're told here that Abraham made a feast for his child. I mean, think about if you were Ishmael. You're growing up in Abraham's household, and Abraham is a rich man. He's got a lot of stuff. And Ishmael is thinking that he's going to inherit all that. All that. He is going to be the heir of everything that Abraham has. And then Isaac is born. And then when Isaac is weaned, Abraham makes a feast for him, and he makes it clear to everyone that Ishmael is not going to be the heir of it. Isaac is going to be. So Ishmael wasn't very happy about it, right? And so he's mistreating here Isaac. He's mocking him, as the text says here. How is this animosity resolved? Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 10 says, Therefore Sarah said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son. I mean, drive out this maid. I mean, again, think about this. If you're driving somebody out into the wilderness, that's death sentence, is it not? And it would be death sentence were it not for miraculous provision of God, right? And she says here, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. You see, God affirmed that the covenant is going to go through Isaac, not Ishmael. God says, yes, I will take care of Ishmael. And God did take care of him, and there's still trouble because of that, right? But the promise is given to Isaac. And Abraham sends Hagar out, and he sends Ishmael out, because Ishmael and Isaac are not going to be co-heirs. These two cannot exist together. One is gone, the other one stays. One inherits everything because the promises were made to him. You see, the blessings were to come through the line of Isaac, not through the line of Ishmael. What is the point? Paul says those who are of the law will not share in the inheritance that is promised to those who are in Abrahamic covenant. If you want to be under the law, you have no inheritance. No inheritance is promised to you. In fact, guess, what was gonna, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be sent out in the wilderness to die. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what happened to them. You see, the Jews used this text to justify rejection of Gentiles. Oh, look at that. Gentiles are sent out. And Paul says, no, 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 no. that's not how it works. He takes their logic and he turns it on them. And he says, Jews and Gentiles who accept Christ, they are accepted like Isaac. But those who cling to the law and do not rely solely on the sacrifice of Christ, guess what? You will be rejected and you have no inheritance. And what are Galatians supposed to do? He says, cast out those who preach to you gospel, other gospel, not the gospel of grace. Anyone who preaches to you anything other than the gospel of grace should be sent out just like Hagar and Ishmael. Don't listen to them. They're, you're not going to inherit anything with them. They have no inheritance with you. You have the promises of God that are given to you. And notice these two lines, they have two distinct destinies. One has promise of eternal life. One has promise of inheritance. The other one is cast out. Those who are of faith inherit Christ and his blessing. And those who are of the law will be cast out into outer darkness. That's the point. That's the picture. Notice these two cannot coexist. You cannot take a little bit of the law and a little bit of grace. No, it's either grace or the law, but it cannot be both. And Paul says anyone who proclaims grace, anyone who preaches the law should be cast out because two of them cannot coexist. 
Man, what an analogy. These six contrasts that Paul has, two sons, two women, two powers, two covenants, two cities, two destinies. And they demonstrate beyond the shadow of the doubt that it is foolish to abandon the gospel of grace and to return to the law. You see, if you are under the law, you are a slave. And you will be eternally condemned. Now we saw Paul's confusion. And we examine the contrast that he makes. Let's finish with his conclusion. What is the conclusion? Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Notice Paul says, listen, I am perplexed, but I didn't lose all hope. And Paul did not lose all hope for these people. Why? Because he was there when they got saved. He was there. I mean, he, like, he gave birth to them. He preached the gospel to them. They accepted. They repented. They believed. And though Galatians were tempted to return and go back under the law, and some of them, according to our text, even wanted to do it, they did not entirely embrace this false teaching yet. Paul says, brethren. So then brethren. He calls them brothers. He's like, think about it. Before you make this choice, it's like the book of Hebrews, Right? You know, you read the book of Hebrews and sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews, there are these warning passages. And he's talking to the church and he stops. By the way, I know some of you are tempted to go back to the old religion. I know, I know you think it's hard and I know that Christianity is tough and I know that you're persecuted and I know that some of you think that I should just go back and worship at the temple. It's beautiful. It's nice. The religion. I know some of you are tempted. Let me give you this warning. That's exactly what he does here. He says, let me give you this warning that I know, brethren, that some of you have believed and because you have believed, he says, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. He says, you are not children of Hagar. You are children of Sarah. You're not like Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh. They're children of Abraham. Why? Because they believed and they exercised the same faith. Now, in this case, how should you respond to those who call you back to the law? How should you respond to those who impose certain restrictions on you and tell you that, well, in order for you to be saved, you got to do this, that, and the other? How should you respond? Now, this chapter break is not helpful because verse 1 is connected to our passage here because he concludes it with this in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, this is a summary of everything Paul's been saying, and this is an introduction to what he's going to say in chapter 5. Christ came in order to bring freedom. You were delivered from your previous life. You were delivered from your bondage. The entire mission of Christ was to take slaves and to make them free. Before Christ, you were imprisoned by the law and its strict requirements. But guess what? Christ came. He gave you freedom. He gave you freedom. He gave you acceptance. He gave you access to the throne room of God. In fact, He made you His son. Now, if you have been free, two commands in this verse. Number one, keep standing firm. Keep standing firm. Now, we need this command because we need to be reminded because there will be those who tell you that, well, you need to go back to the old system. Well, the old system has its advantages. It's better. And even you will be tempted to think like, well, you know what? If I'm good tomorrow, if I do this, that, and the other, then at the end of the day, I can go back and say, God, well, God, I mean, you saw I had a great day today. So you have this natural tendency to go back to the old system and to count points and to say, I'm accepted because I did that or the other. No, he says, listen, stand free in your freedom. Keep standing firm. Do not let anyone come and tell you that you need to keep these rules and need to impose this system on you, that in order for you to be accepted by God, you have to do all that. Christ set you free from all man-made rules. Do not be subject to them. Christ set you free from the judgment of sin. He says you can rejoice in that freedom. You no longer have to work. You no longer have to perform thinking that somehow, some way, by you doing something, you will be accepted. No, you've been given freedom. So guess what? You can breathe now. That's what he's saying. Stand firm. Rejoice in that freedom. 
And then he gives second command. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. How foolish would it be for a death row inmate to go back on the death row after the governor pardoned him simply because he wants to do it? I mean, look, you've been given freedom. Go live your life. Stand free. He's like, no, I'm going to go back. And that's what Paul is saying. If you've been given freedom, why in the world would you want to go back to death row? Because that's what the law is. The law says you are condemned if you're under the law. Now, some people may choose, themselves, choose to sell themselves into slavery to attain some higher goal. That's possible. People have done that in the past. But they're selling themselves into slavery so that they can achieve some greater goal. But imagine a free man selling himself into slavery to attain freedom. And that's just stupid. You already have it. You already have your freedom. Why would you want to go back and work for what you already have? And Paul is saying here, listen, you've already been made a son. You've been given the highest position, a position for which you cannot work. You cannot do anything to attain it. You've been made a son. You've been made a daughter of God. And you say, well, that was great. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to work for it so I can become a child of God. What? That's dumb. That's what Paul says. I'm confused. Why in the world would you want to do that? God has already gave you the highest position you can have. And how did you attain that position? By keeping the law? By doing good? No. By simply trusting Jesus Christ who has done everything for you. That's how you got acceptance. That's how you became a son. And that's why Paul says here, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't be tempted by those who will come along and say, well, you know what? If you really want to be spiritual or if you really want to be holy, I got this little book for you here and you can read this and do this. That. No. He says, now that you are a son, now that you are free, we're going to go on to the next section. He says, you have the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God empowers you to walk in the freedom that He has given you. Now, because you are in the flesh, you will still be tempted to go back to your old ways. But He says, you have power to overcome. I want to close with this. Because we're talking about the gospel here, because we're talking about your acceptance with God. How is it that you're going to be accepted by God? Let me say this. You see, Satan wants you to end up in hell, and he doesn't care how you get there. Doesn't care. He might tempt you to indulge in great immorality and sin, and many people choose that path because say, I'm free to do whatever I want, so I'm going to do it. Many people choose that path. But guess what? He can, already, he can also tempt you to be a very good and moral person. He can tempt you to go to church, read your Bible, lead a Bible study, encourage people, and do all that thinking that as long as you do all that, you will be accepted by God. And guess what? You will end up in the same place as a drunkard and a murderer and everybody else. Because you're trusting in yourself and in your performance. And he doesn't care which path you take as long as you end up in hell. You see, these people, they were thinking that God would accept me because I do this, that, or the other. And you know what? Maybe some of us were not tempted to go back to the old system. We're not tempted to go offer a sacrifice somewhere, right? Or impose something. But you know what? You have other things that tempt you. You have other restrictions that are placed upon you. Well, you know what? If you're a Christian, you should dress a certain way. And you know what? If you want to be accepted by God, dress like that. Or you know you've you got to talk a certain way. Or you got to... And you got all these external rules that somehow will make you acceptable to God. Guess what? None of that matters. Now, again, if you are transformed, if you're redeemed, does that mean that you're going to go out and live freely? No, we talked about that. That's not what it means. But the Spirit of God leads, and you never trust in yourself or your own performance. You trust in Jesus Christ. You see, do not subject yourself to the law or any man-made rules because you've been made free. Freedom is in one person, and one person only, and that is in Jesus Christ. If you're not trusting Christ, you are not free, regardless of how free you think you are. And if you think you're free, I mean, you're talking to unbelievers, they're like, oh, I don't want to become Christian because you know what, then I have to give up all my freedom. Really? Is that true? Well, tell an unbeliever, well, why don't you stop doing what you're doing? For next week, don't sin. And you'll find out that you're not free because you can't stop. Somebody needs to set you free. And that's what Christ does. Christ sets you free from sin. 
And Christ gives you eternal life. And that's why your life after your conversion is praising him for what he has done to you and living out by his spirit what he works in you. Everything else will lead you to hell and will end you there. Therefore, if you're not trusting Christ today, trust Christ. And if you are trusting Christ, stand in that freedom and do not be subject again to yoke of slavery. Let us pray. Christ, we thank you that because of your work and because of your sacrifice, we have been set free. I pray that this truth would go forth from this place and that all of us would trust you and you alone, not in ourselves, not in our performance, but in Christ Jesus. In good days and in bad days, our confidence is not in us, but it is in you. I pray that you would help us to stand firm in that freedom. And go forth and live lives that are reflective of that freedom. That we have the Spirit of God. That we have power to obey and power to manifest Christ. Give us that grace. We ask in your name. Amen.